We are in a series of John, if you are new to us this morning. We are, we are attempting a, a 50-week series on the book of John. We've made it to John chapter 4, so it's still going to be a little while yet. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Worship God Seeks. And although we are going to confine ourselves on the whole to verses 16 through to verse 26 of chapter 4, by way of context, we're going to read from verse 1 so that we can understand this story in its entirety. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord, in our lives we hear 
so many words. And in each and every day, our minds, through our ears, are bombarded by words, thousands of words. Lord, would these words count in our mind today? And would these words today be burnt into our minds so that they affect us every day? Because these words are your words. So, Lord, speak. Speak through your word to us today. Lord, would you encounter each and every individual in this room so that we would go away today understanding and enthused and equipped for true worship. But this is what you desire. So, Lord, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Karl Barth, the famous Swiss theologian, having studied worship at length, once said the following. He said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, And the most glorious action that can ever take place in human life. Now, as I came across that this week, as I do, I begin to study, particularly on Thursday morning. And I arrive at the passage. Usually, as I arrive at the passage, I don't really know what the passage is going to be about, other than some very rough ideas. And I got out my commentaries, and I came across that quote. And when I came across that quote, I did the obligatory pastoral preacher tip of the hat to that quote, where you go, that's very nice. Very interesting. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your observations. And that's really where I left it. But the more I then began to study worship and to study in particular Christian worship and linger on that, the more I realized Mr. Bart is exactly right. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent and the most glorious action that can ever take place in human life. It is profound in its nature. See, all the way through the Bible, worship is an incredibly compelling and important subject. All the way through the Bible, that's the case. When you get to Philippians chapter 3, Christian worship, the real act and heart of worship, is classed as one of the defining marks of genuine Christianity. There are three things that it talks about in Philippians chapter 3. The first mark of True Christianity, or knowing for sure that we're a genuine Christian, is confidence in the true gospel, relinquishing all claims to salvation through ourselves, but instead relying on Christ. The second mark is joy, that we would have our joy in Christ rather than anything else. And the third mark is that we would worship in spirit. That's pretty full on. So a genuine mark of a genuine Christian is genuine worship. And all the way through the Bible then, Worship is offered to us as something of great importance. From Genesis through to the Psalms, a whole book dedicated to songs, to the Gospels through Revelation, worship is a genuinely important and significant topic. And so as we come to John chapter 4 this morning, to be honest, I'm thrilled that we have arrived in this chapter. One of the things I love about expository preaching is you don't just get the preaching that the pastor fancies giving. He's brought into line by this word. It's just whatever you arrive on that week is what is going to be said to the congregation. And I'm thrilled then pastorally that we have arrived in John chapter 4 because in John chapter 4, we have one of the greatest chapters on worship that exists in God's word. You see, in John chapter 4, We are invited by Jesus to take up a seat 
by this Samaritan lady. And as we take up a seat by this lady at the well, Jesus begins to communicate to us about one thing above everything else. He begins to communicate to us about true worship. And today then, as we draw up a seat alongside this lady, and as we draw up a seat alongside the Savior, there is one thing that I want to talk about then, namely true worship. The worship that God loves. The worship, as we see in verse 23, that God truly seeks. And given the importance and significance of worship, I'm grateful that we get to sit by the well today and hear the Savior talking. We're going to be addressed by Jesus on what true worship really is. And given its significance, I can think there is no better seat in the house then than by this well where he's going to communicate to us that we may understand then what is this worship that the Father seeks. And so here's my hopes this morning. Firstly, my hope is that we would be appropriately informed and enthused by true worship. I want us to leave today understanding in our minds and grasping what really is worship as biblically defined, not as Dave Taylor defined, not as Sovereign Grace Ministries defined, but the Bible. What is the Bible? What does the Savior in particular have to communicate to us about what true worship is? I hope that we will leave then informed and enthused by that. And I also hope that we will leave today tested You see, whenever we see Jesus communicating to us, and he's so clear, we must understand the principle of James then that we are going to be looking at ourselves in the mirror. And so there is an implied question all the way through, which is, are you worshipping like this? Is this your expression of worship? Does your worship fall into line with the word? Or is it just our expression of worship? And so I'm hopeful today that we will be informed, we will be infused, we will be tested, and then by God's grace, I'm also hopeful that we would be equipped, that we may understand what true worship is and then also understand how we may grow in it. And so the way we're going to proceed as follows. Later on, I want to communicate to us how to cultivate true worship. It's been a question that has been burdened on my heart, I believe, by the Spirit. And so later on, I want to communicate and look at that. How do we cultivate this true worship? But the bulk of our time, I want us to pull up a seat at the well with Jesus, with the Samaritan woman, and begin to listen to him communicate to us about true worship, the worship that God loves, the worship that God seeks. And so here's the three things, three things that we're going to need to grasp this morning. There are three distinguishing marks of true worship, and they are all put here to us in chapter 4 from verse 1 through to verse 26. If you want to know what is the worship that God loves, here it is. Three distinguishing marks of that worship. And here's number one then. Number one, true worship, worship that the Father loves, true worship is birthed in grace. True worship is birthed in grace, and that's what we see from verses 1 through to the end of verse 18. You know, one thing that is wonderfully clear from this text, and I trust we saw it last week too, is the relentless and gracious pursuit of the Savior. I mean, it is overwhelming, is it not? This pursuit that he has towards this lady is absolutely relentless. She tries to put him off. She tries to put in a few googlies here and then and try to put him off the topic. And yet he stays with it because he is relentless. And he's also gracious with it, isn't he? It's not only relentless, it's relentless in in grace. It's remarkable that he is even here and this scene is taking place. I mean, picture the scene for a moment because it's so important we understand what is taking place at the well. 
Jesus, along with his disciples, have been having an absolute legend of a time in Judea. Things are going happy days, to be honest. They are baptizing the entire world. Everybody's coming out to them. He's making disciples of massive crowds. The disciples are high-fiving daily. I mean, everything is going well. But then Jesus decides it's time to move on. The Pharisees have found out that he's getting more popular than John. He's clearly concerned about that. And in the midst then of a very complex situation that the Savior in his sovereignty understands, he realizes now is the time to go on. And one reason why he realizes it's time to go on is because in his divinity, he's got an appointment to keep. In his sovereignty, he has got an appointment to keep with a woman by the well. And so he leaves Judea and he sets his course to Samaria. It's surprising that he was even going to Samaria because most Jews hated Samaritans and so they would go round, but not Jesus. He's got an appointment to keep with this woman because despite racial difficulties, he wants to save her soul. And so they arrive at Sychar and as he arrives, he, he sits down. He sends his disciples out. That is one of the most ironic and funny points in this story. Do you really think it takes 12 grown men to get a meal for 12 grown men? One or two could have done that and brought it back. But Jesus just wants rid of his disciples. He's like, dudes, you've got to go because I've got an appointment with this woman and she's coming this way, so you go get dinner because I need to sit here. And so he sits at the well. The well, as we saw last week, is in effect Mark colored. This was an incredibly racist situation. And he sits there and he talks to this woman as she approaches. And in a desire to seek her and save her, he asks for a drink and starts talking to her about living water. I mean, this is a remarkable scene. As the Savior sits there, he's talking to a woman. Rabbis didn't do this. The most strict rabbis understood that you don't communicate to women in this way. You certainly don't ask them for a drink because if you drank from their utensils, that would in in effect defile you. There was men known as rabbis. They were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And the reason for that was as soon as they even saw a woman, they closed their eyes because they didn't didn't even want to look upon a woman. And so they would bump into things. And that's why they were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. True. So the very fact that Jesus is even talking to a woman is a surprise to many. But she's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. The Jews hated the Samaritans. As we said last week, there was major animosity between these two racial parties. And so it is incredibly shocking that he is talking not only to a woman, but a woman who's a Samaritan. But that's not all either, is it? She's not just a woman. She's not just a Samaritan woman. She's an adulterous Samaritan woman. For she's been married five times, and even this bloke that she's now shacked up with, he's not a husband either. So even now she is living in adultery and sin. And so what emerges from this remarkable scene is the relentless and gracious pursuit of the Savior. This is scandalous grace. That our Savior, the King of the world, would pause and sit on a well with this woman. Why did he do it? Because he wants to save her soul. He loves her and he's come for her. This is the relentless and gracious pursuit of the Savior. We see it with this woman. The truth is we should see it if we're distinct in our lives too, shouldn't we? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, reliving his story of salvation, says as follows, says, when I was coming to Christ, 
I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrine of election, in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I'd grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man, that I'd made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all that clue to the truth of God. For one week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. I like that. And the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? This triggers an internal conversation in his mind. For I sought the Lord, thought I. But how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me see him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? For well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures, but how came I to read the scriptures? I read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. For I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I love that. As we look in on this Samaritan woman's story, what exactly does she bring to the party? Nothing. Just getting on with her life. She's just popping to the well because it's, you know, it's lunchtime and she's an adulterous lady. She's clearly an outcast even in her own community and so no one wants to go to the well in midday. So she goes to the well in midday just by her own volition. And yet Jesus is seeking her out for salvation. He's there to meet her. And he's there to meet her very specifically in his sovereignty at this time on this day because this is the day of her salvation. This is the day where she will meet the King of Kings. And this is the day where her life will be transformed upside down for all eternity. And so this woman, as we look in on her story, we can say to her, Miss, your change can be ascribed wholly to God. All you brought with you was your desire for a drink. And yet God in his grace and his sovereignty came after you and pursued you with relentless grace. We can see that for this woman. Folks, would we see it in our own stories as well? Just like Mr. Spurgeon. Did you really seek God? And if you did, how come you sought him? I'll tell you why. Because he pursued you. That's why you're here. You're here because in the divine mystery of sovereignty, he came after you. He pursued your soul. To know then, Jayapaka says, that from eternity my maker, foreseeing my sin, foreloved me and resolved to save me, though it, would never be, though it would be at the cost of Calvary, to know that the divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home, to know that the Lord, who loved me and gave himself up for me, 
and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. Mr. Packer is right. To know this, to know this for ourselves and to know that we have been on the receiving end of a relentless, gracious pursuit should cause our hearts to to be overwhelmed in grace and joy. And you know what grace and joy looks like when it is exposed? Worship. That's what it looks like. And so, true worship. What is the first distinguishing mark of it? True worship is birthed in grace. And that is one of the main points of verses 1 through 18. It is all about the pursuit of the Savior and the birth of a life to worship. In Christ to the Father. True worship then is birthed in grace. Wonderful, isn't it? That's not all. Number two, true worship is rooted in truth. And that's what we see from verses 19 through 24. You see, verse 18, Jesus is is talking to this lady about how she's had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, and and, you know, it's in effect, she's saying, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, I'm seeing that you're right and you know who I am. And then in verses 19 through 20, we have a hilarious scene. This is the greatest change of topic that you are ever going to come across in your life. I mean, men, you will know how this works. When your wife addresses you in something and you suddenly think of something else that is very important to point out or talk about right now. She's communicated this to you and you go off topic. It's what we all do. And this is what she does. Right here, verse 19, having been addressed by the Savior about the issue of her sin, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Don't you love that that maneuver? It has nothing to do with what he's just addressed her in. She's completely trying to change the topic. Sir, I I perceive you are a prophet. She then carries on. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's tried to change the topic, and yet the Savior has already achieved what he wanted to achieve with her. He wants her to understand that in his divinity, he does know her heart. There is nothing hidden from you. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. It's the same with all of us. Just as Emma Emma prayed and and prophesied earlier on, we can think, oh Lord, I I can't really worship you because, because I'm a sinner. Do you think he doesn't know that? Of course he knows that. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And yet in his grace, he he paid the price for that sin and died for you so that you can fully enter in. So he's achieved what he wanted to achieve with this woman. She's already just understood that you see my heart, you know I am. And she starts to communicate to him then about worship, about what true worship is really about. And she basically says to him, you know, we obviously worship God at Mount Gerizim because that's the temple we built. But you do, you worship in Jerusalem. Which one's right? Which one is the right location? And Jesus, full of grace, having already achieved what he wanted to achieve within helping us see her heart, he decides to take up the important topic of worship with her. He starts to communicate to her, and praise God he did as we take part in sitting now at the well and listening in. He starts to communicate to her about the second part of true worship. Verse 21, then he says this, 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's basically saying to her right up front, lady, it's not going to make any difference anymore. It doesn't matter where you worship. In fact, worship where is relevant. Because a day is coming when it doesn't matter what mountain you're on. It doesn't matter where you are. It just doesn't make any difference anymore. But here's true worship. Verse 22 and 23. For you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father, listen, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so what is true worship? Well, true worship is, is birthed in grace. But the second distinguishing mark is that true worship is rooted in truth. See, there is no doubt, no doubt at all that God is seeking worship. It's what he's like. He, he wants worship. For everybody else in the universe, that would be proud. But for God, that is not proud. Because if he didn't seek your worship, he'd be committing idolatry. Time doesn't permit for me to go that through any length. But if he gave attention to anything else, he would basically be pointing to something else and saying, that's better than me, so worship that. That's odd. So he craves worship so that all eyes can come onto him so that we don't commit idolatry in and of ourselves, and so that we find our joy and satisfaction in him and him alone. There is no doubt that God desires worship. We understand that. And I've never met a Christian yet that says, I don't think God's that bothered about us worshipping him. We all know that's the case. But then in grace, he explains to us, he doesn't just want random worship. He just doesn't want just have a go worship, see how you feel. He wants to ensure that our worship is rooted in truth. It is rooted in one thing and one thing alone. This. This. All our worship has to be defined and understood in light of this. And you know, I think in so many ways that makes sense, doesn't it? See, worshipping God has its roots in a relationship with God, doesn't it? It has its roots in spending time with God. For we have been adopted by God the Father. It has its roots in a relationship with God. And so it would be very odd if God then said, look, I really want your worship, but it's not that important to me whether you worship as I really am or as you think I might be. That would be a bit strange. And so he says, no, I want your worship, but I want you to worship me as I really am, not what you think I might be. That is why, my friends, we must, and I'm more and more convinced, the longer I've been a pastor, the more and more convinced I am, we must, we must ensure that worship and all we do in our lives is is all about this, nothing else. Dave Taylor's preferences, honestly, who cares? Pastoral preferences, don't matter. Sovereign grace, it doesn't matter. The word of God, oh, that's everything. This is what we stand on. And true worship revolves then around this. Because it's in the word of God that we have the largest portion of self-revelation there is. It is through the word of God that we see, for, we see God for who he really is and not what we think he is. See, there are so many things in life that can come and go. 
So many things in life that can change and vary. In church life, in Christian life, in worship, things can, things can change. Methodologies can change. But the message must never change. And the message is this. The word. We must stand as a local church on this word and never move off this word. Just this week I was challenged and provoked by the example of Martin Luther. A number of years ago in the early 16th century, he really sought to imbibe and understand more of the Bible and bring the Bible much more central then into Protestant services. So he started to encourage communal singing. Communal singing actually came from him. He wanted people to start to sing truth about God's word. He wanted to allow singing to be a moment where we can allow the word of God to dwell in us richly. And so he really single-handedly brought congregational singing back into the church at the time. The church before that had become imbibed in traditions. It had become encrusted in ceremony. There were all types of things going on. And yet he brought the word of God back in central. And John Calvin then took it really one stage further, which I just love. See, John Calvin, he ordered that the altars be completely removed from his church. At that point, the altars in Latin Mass were the main thing, and they would take central place in the church. But he ordered that those Latin Mass tables be completely removed, and that the pulpit would come in from the side and come right here. Because he wanted his people to know. He wanted all of the architecture from the room to all point to one thing. He wanted everybody's gaze and everybody's eyes, whether it be in singing worship or in preached worship, to all be pointing towards this point. And at this point, he would put his Bible. Because he wanted everybody to understand this is it. Well, we hire a school, so that's tricky for me. But in heart, I'm exactly the same. We must understand that this is what it's all about. It's a, this is what it is all about for all of life. For everything we do, everything we are in marriage, in, in parenting, in church, in evangelism. It, it doesn't matter about city or personal preferences. They're not important. The only thing that's important is this. And in our worship, this is vital. This is how God reveals himself in truth to us. And so we must then be people of the word. And so true worship, it is birthed in grace. And true worship is rooted in the word of God. We must be too. But then there's one other thing. Number three, true worship is reflected in spirit. Look again at verse 23. It says, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What is the worship that the Father is seeking? Well, that worship is without question a desire for our heads. He wants our minds to be filled with truth and not our personal preferences or what we think we might be doing on certain things. He wants our minds to be filled with accurate truth of him. But there's also no question when it comes to worship, he doesn't just want our heads. He wants our hearts. He wants the very soul of who we are. You see that word spirit there in verse 23? That is mistakenly and, and to be honest, heretically taken as the Holy Spirit. But it is not. 
That is why there is a lowercase s and not a capital S. There is no definitive article there in, in the Greek. So it's not the spirit, it is our spirit. And when you see our spirit, it's talking about us. It's talking about our heart, our soul, who we are, the, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our love, the seat of our affections. What we're learning very clearly here is that God, in his grace and in his worship, he doesn't just want worshippers that are birthed in grace to then study him in truth and not along. That is not enough. That is nowhere near enough for what God wants. He wants worshippers that will worship in truth, that will worship the accuracies of who he is. And then he wants those worshippers to ensure that their hearts are engaged, that they are affected and infused and amazed by this truth, which is what worship is, is all about. Head alone, not enough. Heart alone, not enough either. Head and heart. Truth and spirit are absolutely vital. You know, on a theological level, on a theological level, this necessary engagement of heart in worship is taught throughout Scripture. It's everywhere. And so please don't misunderstand. This is, this is not a sovereign grace way. Who cares about sovereign grace? This is the Bible. This is a Jesus sitting at the well and communicating to his people way. And this is all the way through the Bible where he helps us see, I don't just want your heads. I want your heart. And so Psalm 100, take that as an example. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So is it singing that he wants? Is that alone enough? No. Because he says, Serve the Lord with gladness. That is sandwiched by two illustrations of singing. He doesn't just want us to sing. He wants us to sing with gladness. Well, that's not head, is it? That's heart. I've never heard somebody say, oh, yes, my head is glad. It is. That's very strange. My, my heart is glad and my head is full. And so I want to sing. James chapter 5, verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Oh, and is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James, why? Why do they want to sing praise? I'll tell you why, why I want them to sing praise. Because if their heart is cheerful, their heart will be cheerful because they're amazed by what God has done. And so the best way to express that then is through praise. By casting worship to the maker of heaven and earth. Because head alone isn't enough. God wants our hearts. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is that enough? Are we done? No. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is singing alone enough? Never. He wants us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. He wants our hearts to be engaged. He wants our hearts, our, the soul of our affections to be stirred as we consider who God is and to respond then accordingly. C.H. Spurgeon says, I love it. I love it the way he says things. He says, God does not regard our voices. That is very encouraging for people like can't sing. Okay, that is, that is encouraging. He's not really interested in your voice. God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. But if our hearts do not sing, then we have not sung at all. How brilliant. Does he regard our voices? Not really. 
But if our hearts aren't singing and there are just empty words coming out of our mouths, then reality, we haven't sung at all. Nothing's taken place. It's just a work. It's a little performance. We might as well do a tap dance for Jesus. It, it really doesn't make any difference. It's just a little performance before we speak the word. He wants our heads, but he wants our hearts. And as a culmination of those scriptures, Jesus vehemently, in Matthew 15, verse 8, talking about the Pharisees, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is what he says. In vain do they worship me. Why is that worship in vain, Jesus? I'll tell you why it's in vain. Because they honor me with their lips. They sing, they say, they serve, but their hearts aren't engaged at all. There's no affections for me. There's no love for me. They're just doing it as outward acts, but their hearts are far from me. And so their worship is in absolute vain. John Piper says it this way. He says, where feelings for God are dead, worship for God is dead. What a challenge. How provoking. Where feelings for God are dead, where our hearts are uninterested in him and we're just going through the motions of, well, I've got to worship because I think I should, then worship is dead. It's not happening. Because theologically, all the way through the Bible, we learn that the engagement of the heart in worship is important. And I think we understand that theologically, but the more I thought about it this week, I thought the truth is we can understand it relationally as well, can't we? Just practically, when we think about our own lives. I mean, you and I, we're made in the image of God, right? True? You can nod. You can do, okay, good. You're made in the image of God. We have emotions. We have heart. God is, God is like that. We're made in his image in that sense. He has feelings. He has emotions. And so imagine in the context of worship, See, worship, if you look at you know, Shakespeare and all that, worship used to be called worth-ship. Okay? So it would be expressing worth to a ship, to someone. That's, that's where the word comes from. And then it, you know, in, in English storytelling, the TH went, and they thought, oh, we'll go with the S instead. And so it became worship, but it was expressing worth to someone. Imagine the scene, relationally. I come home to Emma, and uh, I say, you know what, I've bought you some flowers, and I whip out some flowers for Emma, and I present my flowers to Emma. She's pretty excited. I mean, I've bought her flowers. She's like, oh, that's, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much for the flowers. What, why did you do it? It's not my birthday. It's not our anniversary. I said, well, it's my duty. I'm your husband. <laughs> that's really weird. Relationally, that is so strange. And yet in worship, when we worship just in head, that is exactly what we're doing to God. God, I'm here. Singing. Why, son? Why are you singing? I have to. <laughs> it says sing praises to God. I mean, that is not worship. That is not worship. That is just singing. So we understand it theologically, but when we pause and think about it, realizing we're made in the image of God, we understand it relationally as well. That is so strange. True worship, without doubt, takes head. But it takes heart too, doesn't it? To express genuine worship to someone, we, we have to be, our emotions have to be involved. We have to be bothered. We have to be affected. 
Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, you know what? Yeah, you may be right, but I think this is purely optional. Negative. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, when I came across that verse this week, I was remotely freaked out myself, let alone anybody else. This is a must. There are three great musts in the Gospel of John. The first great must... There's only three musts that we've discussed so far. The first great must is that you must be born again. To genuinely be saved, you must be born again. The second great must is when Jesus says, the Son of God must be lifted up. Jesus must die. And here's the third and final must of the entire gospel. You must worship in spirit and truth. Oh. It's not very, it's not optional. It's a command. We got him. True worship, then, is birthed in grace. It is rooted in truth. And for true worship to truly be true worship, it must also be reflected in our heart. Our hearts must be engaged. Now, theologically, I could, without question, stop the message there. Thank you for coming. Enjoy teas and coffees. And we go home. Because that's what the scripture says. And yet the more I studied it this week and the more I waited on the Lord for what I believe he wanted to do with us this morning, the more, the more I felt his prompting not only to discuss what true worship is, but to close with looking then at how, how do I cultivate then that true worship? Particularly when my heart is cold. Because I don't know about you, but for me, my heart is not always red hot for Jesus. I do not wake up every morning like Skippy, jump out of bed and go, Jesus, yes! That's odd. I, I don't do that. It's not as easy as that. And if you're like me, then you will know seasons and times when your heart has gone cold to this. And if we have been instructed then by the Savior at the well that my worship has to be in spirit and truth, how am I going to do this? sometimes my heart feels so far away sometimes my heart can feel like the candle that is about to pass out as it runs out of wax so how do I, how do I cultivate this worship because I, it's what I want to be it's what I want to give him for this is the worship the father seeks but how can I ensure then that, that this is my story well to close I just want to give you some application points six things that I just want to pass out there straight off that I think will help us to understand then, how do we cultivate this true worship? How do we cultivate it when our hearts are far from the Lord, when our spirit is dim? Number one, here's what you do. Number one, study the attributes of God, in particular, his incommunicable attributes. If your heart is cold in spirit, then I want to recommend that is where you start, studying the attributes of God, in particular his incommunicable, incommunicable attributes. Now, God has many attributes, right? Love, mercy, grace. There are many attributes of God, and we can relate to some of them because we're similar. They're communicable attributes, but there are incommunicable attributes that we can't. We can't really relate at all, and I think it's those ones we want to focus on. So things like God's omnipresence, the fact that he is all present everywhere. How does he do that? I have no idea. But think about it. Study it. How is it that he can be meeting with people in this moment all around the world in his entire fullness with particular attention to everybody? I don't know. 
But study it because it starts to make your vision of God greater. Omniscience, the fact that he's all-knowing. Infiniteness, independence. Study these things. Matthew Henry says on independence, I love this. He says, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. But not so with God. He says, absolutely, I am who I am. Don't you love that? I am who I am. You have to say, by the grace of God, you are who you are, but not me. I am. I am the great I am. And so when our spirit starts to go cold, we begin, I think, by studying God. Who, who are you? I want to see the truth of who you are. So often our spirits can be dim because God has become so small in our eyes. We must allow him to be big. If he has become small, we are worshiping someone that doesn't exist because God is a big God. So study the attributes of God, in particular, his incommunicable attributes. Number two, study the doctrines of grace. So election, irresistible calling, justification, perseverance, the the doctrines of grace. These are all the doctrines that will help us understand that I ascribe all of my salvation to God and God alone. They're the truths of grace. And when we study them, that flame that is in our hearts that is dim will start to be fueled with God's word because you realize this is what he's done for you. Number three, each and every day, survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. It is hard to be unaffected by grace when we are each and every day spending time at Calvary. In fact, I submit to you, those times of dimness really won't happen if we spend each and every day by Calvary. So often we have seasons of dimness because we've moved on from Calvary and we've done something else. John Stott says, The cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. Amen to that. The cross is a venue where where we stand next to him and all he's done, our hearts will be warmed. But we have to get near enough to the cross for those sparks to really affect us and hit us. Number four, consistently practice the spiritual disciplines. You know, the truth is we can never earn grace. We don't need to. Jesus Christ has earned grace in full for us at Calvary. And yet we can position ourselves to experience grace. And that's in part what spiritual disciplines are all about. We're not there to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness so that God can say, oh, well done, haven't you done well? We're there to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness because it is through those actions that we experience the grace of God. Through the word of God and through prayer and through worship, that's how we experience his nearness and experience his grace towards us and we allow the fuel of our hearts to be inflamed. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is with Mary and Martha. Martha is distracted with 101 things. We live in a city that is distracted with 101 things. And the temptation for Christians is to be distracted with 101 things. But Jesus looks at Martha in the eyes and says, Listen, Mary's chosen the good portion. She has chosen the only thing that's necessary. 
See, so often in my life, to be honest, when the wick of my spirit is running low, if you were to say to me, Dave, how is your spiritual disciplines going? 99% of the time, I would say to you, they're not. It's just been a quiet season. It's been busy. Got a lot on. Folks, this isn't rocket science stuff. We've got to feed our candle with oxygen. That oxygen is the grace of God transmitted to us through spiritual discipline, through reading God's word, through prayer, through worship, looking to him for help. Number five, regularly bring to mind all of God's benefits. You know, arguably, I don't think anyone understood the importance of this concept more than King David. In Psalm 103, he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, and who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You know, I think so often we can live in a world that is ungrateful and lacks joy. And, you know, I could say that as a Brit because we specialize in it. You know, palms, uh, we are whinging palms for a reason. I remember when I first arrived in America, they said, oh, we've got a funny joke about Brits. And we said, oh, well, what's that? And yeah, how do you know a Brit is, is coming off the plane? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, you know, the, pl- the plane stops and they turn the engines off, but you can still hear the whining. I think, oh. Thank you, that's really funny. It's great, it's great. <laughs> but we do. We, you know, in Britain, people are, people are negative. They complain. That's why if you watch British soaps, they're just sitting at the table going, yeah, yeah it's rubbish, isn't it? So, that's what they like all the time because we delight in just complaining. It's just everything is rubbish. But as Christians, we shouldn't be like that. As Christians, the joy of the Lord should be our strength. As Christians, we should be amazed by what God has done. And the only way we can be amazed by what God has done is when we apply Psalm 103, i.e. we bring to mind all of God's benefits. You see, in context there, David is not just trying to convince us of all of God's benefits. He's exemplifying for us. He's illustrating for us how it is that he can praise the Lord, O my soul. And that's why he says it, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And then he starts to list why he is fueling himself. This is why I'm going to praise the Lord. Because this is who he is. And this is all he's done. Forget not all his benefits. Check him out. Look at all he's done for me. So praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Because now, as I renew my mind with these things, I'm not only worshiping in truth, I'm worshiping in spirit because I'm ecstatic. Hold me back from worshiping because I'm so affected by all he's done. So I want to encourage you, church, Forget not all his benefits. And this is where you start. The fact that you're still alive. That alone is scandalous grace. You and I deserve to be in hell. On the receiving end of God's righteous wrath. That's our story. Everything else, that's his grace. And when you start to view life like that, It changes everything. So forget not his benefits. Regularly bring to mind all of God's benefits. And finally, number six, regularly pray and ask God for his help. You know, I think in pride 
or misunderstanding. I think worship is one of those things that so often we think we've got to do all by ourselves. This is a me moment. God's done so much for me, so me will worship him all by myself. And yet scripturally that isn't the case at all. Scripturally we need God for everything. Even to serve him, to worship him, we need his help, we need his assistance. And so when our spirits are cold, one of the primary vehicles we must do is to to pray. Lord, you do help me. Would you give me grace? I I feel so weak. I I feel so disaffected with you and I don't want to feel that, Lord. Would you you give me grace? Folks, when we pray like that, here's what we can anticipate. The one who pursued you in the first place, the one who came to your well at the right time, will also supply grace and mercy to you in your time of need. See, Hebrews 4 says it this way. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You know, when our spirits are lacking, we must go to God. We must run to him and say, Lord, help me. You came to my well once before. and Lord, I'm here. Would you, would you give me grace? Because I want to worship you not only with my head. I want my affections and my heart and my emotions to be fully involved in worship to you. Lord, I realize this is a must. So, Lord, give me grace. And you know what? When we do that, fascinating though it is, when we come to the Lord with that type of prayer, that will not only cultivate affection, our true worship in that moment will have begun. See, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. But when we run to God and pray, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me feel like I once felt? Lord, I want to be feeling more. Those feelings aren't dead, are they? That's why we're bothered. They're still alive. And so when we go to God in truth, responding to Scripture, realizing that I'm commanded to pray, and then we pray from our hearts because we're bothered, we're not only cultivating worship, our true worship in that moment will have already begun. Listen, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can ever take place in human life. So praise God for John chapter 4. Praise God that Jesus took the time to sit with us by a well and communicate to us what this worship is that is true, what this worship is that the Father seeks. For true worship is birthed in grace, rooted in truth, and reflected in spirit. And so, folks, I want to encourage you then, would this be the story of Sovereign Grace Church? Would this be our worship? And in that, would God find true delight? Let's pray. Lord, it is, it is overwhelming to consider that you would pursue a Samaritan adulterous woman. And yet it is more overwhelming to consider that you would pursue us.
Lord, would we never tire of being amazed in the gospel of grace, not only theologically, but relationally to us. And Father, I pray for every one of us in this room, would our hearts turn in a desire to be true worshippers, because Lord, that's what we want. We want to be the worshippers that you have sought. We want to worship in a way that you may be crowned on your throne and sing along with your delight as you hear our praise, not just coming from our lips, but you, the sovereign one who knows our hearts, sees it coming from our hearts too. Lord, I pray for all those who are at this moment finding that their spirit is dim. Lord, you know of times in my life where my spirit is dim. And you have shown me, as your son, profound grace. Lord, as your son, then I, I ask for that profound grace to be the experience of all those this morning that are also coming to you afresh and asking to receive that grace. And Lord, I pray on their behalf, knowing that you will give it to them, because that's what you're like. You're a God who sings over us. For surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And so moments like this, where you pause with us at a well, is not to discipline us. It's to care. Because you know what matters most. And so Lord, for all those then that are weak in spirit, would they know again your favor? Would they know again your mercy, know again your grace? And would we all then, as a local church, week by week and day by day, be the worshippers that you seek? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.